If you are a woman, what might be one of the three most important words you might want to hear? How about, you are beautiful? Maybe? And if you're a man, three most important words. The game is on. Maybe. Or you're handsome. Four, the game's on. We just speak in slurs. Remember, we're men. Three most important words to a kid. Let's eat out. (laughs) And the three most important words to a teenager? Here's your phone. (laughs) And the three most important words of a pat not to a pastor, but for a pastor. Now in conclusion, that's somebody else's. Now, three most important words to someone who follows Jesus. He is risen. He he has risen indeed. Today is about the resurrection, but if I can just be honest about today, we have made today too nice. There is so much tension in the resurrection that that we've kind of missed it, and so I want to just take us to Matthew 28, because every one of these writers tells the story of the resurrection, all four gospel writers who tell the story of Jesus. Each of them has just a little different angle, but each one of them has tension in the text. So listen and imagine yourself in the story. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they went to the tomb to look. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now as I tell you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, they clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And while the women were on their way, some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests met with the elders, they devised a plan and they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night while we were asleep and, if the, and stole the body. And if the report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. Do you pray with me? God, we want to see you. We don't just want to remember Easter. We want to see you. We want to feel your presence and your peace and your power. God, but sometimes we're afraid, sometimes we're not honest about our tension. 
I pray that you would speak to us, that you'd reveal yourself to us today, that what has been true of you might be true in us. Amen. Can you feel it? Can you sense that dichotomy, that tension? The sun is rising, but the earth is shaking and quaking. The women are afraid, and yet the women are filled with joy. There's angels that are dressed in white. They're acting full of peace and calm. And the guards, they're so afraid that they're shaking like dead people, filled with dread. The women run to tell the disciples to spread the news that Jesus is risen, and yet the guards, or the religious leaders, are paying off the guards to spread a rumor that his body has been stolen. There's this tension, there's this wondering, there's this doubt. In the very next verse of Matthew, it says that when Jesus saw his disciples, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There's a tension in that, and I think there's always a tension in the resurrection, especially the closer we get to it, because we are secretly or silently asking some questions. Like, can I believe it? What does it take to believe it? And what do I do if, what, what, what does it mean if I actually do believe it? See, there's tension because we're wondering if I can believe it. We don't just want to have this blind faith. We want to have an intelligent faith. And, and so if you're skeptical of the resurrection of Jesus, just hear that you're not alone. In fact, God has no problem with skeptics. Matthew tells us there's been two earthquakes in three days. I want to know more about those earthquakes. There's not a lot of earthquakes in this region of the country, and yet, or this region of the world, and yet Matthew doesn't go into those details. To him, those are extra details. They are not important. I can't lose myself in those details. Matthew talks about one angel. Luke talks about two angels. Well, they were in dazzling white, and they were, their appearance was like lightning, so maybe it was hard to tell if there was one or two. There was one that spoke, but again, those are just pieces of my can I believe it question. I love the honesty, though, of Luke's account. We heard it at the very beginning of the service where it said, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Those women had to be wondering, how are we going to get past the Roman guards? Or how are we going to break the Roman seal that's on the tomb? Or what, who is going to move the stone out of the way so that we can go in and, and use these spices? These spices, they, they would have spent hundreds of dollars and hours preparing these spices. They would have used these spices to embalm Jesus' body. That's what they were walking to do. That's why I think they were wondering those questions, because that's what you do with a dead body. You embalm it. And yet, these women get there, and while they were wondering, an angel comes and appears like lightning and says to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Have you ever thought about that? I've read that. I've read that hundreds of times. And this week, God just spoke to me through that. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Where do you look for the living among the dead? Do you escape with stuff that you know isn't going to live 5, 10, 15 years? It's definitely not eternity, but you escape there. You live there, 
and you think that it's going to bring you life, but it's dead. Are you looking for the living at Easter? Or are you just going through a ritual that you remember? I think it's a good question that the angels are asking the women, one that would do us good to ponder. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Where do you look for the living among the dead? It caused me to say, do I really, am I looking for a living hope? Do I really want to find his presence? Or would I just be satisfied with finding a body? See, I think the question behind the question of can I believe it is that second question, what does it take to believe it? What does it take to believe it? Do you need evidence? And how much evidence do you need? I don't have anything wrong with evidence. In fact, the, the guards, they wanted to see and then believe. The guards didn't see the body, so they were satisfied maybe with this bribe. You know, it's, they, they could have lost their lives from the Roman officials if they fell asleep on the job. So there's a high stake here, but they could, guess they put a price on their life. And, and there's some things that we will settle for when we can't see to believe. But if we just stop and consider this claim for a moment that the body was stolen by the disciples. I know I can't do justice to it in a few minutes, but if you've ever wondered this, the stories, all four of them, specifically Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all paint the disciples as fearful, doubtful. They, they have grief. They lack any courage, certainly not enough to go and take on the guards of Rome and steal the body. But even if that wasn't the case, what if it wasn't the disciples that stole it. What if the Roman officials stole it? I think that might make a more substantial claim if it was the Roman or the Jewish authorities that, that took the body. However, if the authorities took the body, when Jesus' disciples started saying, Christ is risen from the dead, why didn't they say, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, no, 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 here's the body. Or uh, we move the body. There's the new tomb. And if that didn't work, they could simply dig up the body and traipse it through the city of Rome. That would have stopped any of this movement. But none of those stories exist. In fact, you can even look outside of Scripture and you will see references and historical references to the death and crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I think this idea that the body was stolen is not really a substantial claim. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, uh, I didn't really want to come and hear a history lesson or a little apologetic debate, um, this idea of what does it take to believe it is kind of best captured in author and professor C.S. Lewis's quote that says, if Christianity is false, then it's of no importance. It doesn't matter. But if Christianity is true, it's of infinite importance. But one thing it cannot be is just moderately important. This is life and death. This is living hope or empty ritual. This idea of can I believe it 
is really about how much evidence do you need to believe it. Faith is, re- is, is about gathering all the evidence available and seeing where it points and then taking a step or a jump or a leap towards it. Blind faith is simply jumping in the dark and hoping everything's going to be okay, and that's what we're talking about. But as you look at the available evidence, do you see where it points? That disciples who are afraid are filled with courage. That women who really have very little standing in society suddenly get elevated to a place of importance. That guards would take bribes. That that, That Roman officials would throw everything they have to stop this uneducated, ordinary band of people, and they, do, they can't do it. The evidence does point towards this being a reality. Can I believe it? What does it mean to believe it? Well, if the evidence is pointing that way, can we take a step or a leap towards that, which is trusting that Jesus was who he said he was, and he did what he said he did. Which probably brings us to that third question. Well, then what does it mean if I do believe it? What does it really mean to trust that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did? Well, that would be that would be hard. That would be hard because so many of us, especially if we are middle class or upper class Americans, this is where we get stuck. We get stuck at the end of this challenge. Do I need to see to believe? Do I need to be like Thomas, who said in John, who said he, he wasn't there the night that Jesus revealed himself to the, disciple, the disciples? And Thomas said, Unless I can see the nail marks, unless I can touch them with my finger, unless I can put my hand in, his, in the hole on his side, I won't believe. I need the evidence. I need to see it. I need to be in control of that step or that leap or that jump. So many of us get stuck there. I know I get stuck there. I have gotten stuck there. But Jesus does come to him doesn't scold them for having doubts, doesn't scold them for needing that proof. He actually says, here's the proof. Thomas, look at my hands. Put your fingers in the marks. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And he does believe. And Jesus says a very, very profound truth. He says, blessed. You, you believe because you have seen me, but blessed are you who believe without seeing See, this is where we get stuck, in between the second and third questions. If it means that I have to take this step, it means there is going to be a point where I have to see by faith, not by sight, where I'm not going to be given everything, because if I'm given everything, I'm trusting me. And we've got to have some wonder, and we've got to have some tension in the resurrection, because trusting Jesus means that what's true of him is going to become true of you. I don't want you to miss that. That's, that's really the, the reality of the morning. What does it mean? If I do believe this, it means what becomes true, what has been true of him, becomes true of you. It means that his life and death and resurrection becomes your life 
and death and resurrection. And this is what we see through the rest of the story. For these women, what have become true of what's been true of Jesus becomes true of them. These women enjoy, they find new life, they find joy. There was a little fear mixed in as they started, but it soon evaporated and they were set free, full of peace, full of hope, full of power, full of Jesus' presence, and they lived into that joy and generosity and peace. And for the disciples, same thing. Once they believed what has been true of Jesus becomes true of them. They become these these courage-filled people. Peter, in particular, is set free from the shame of his life, from the shame of his denial. He is set free and filled with peace, filled with courage, filled with power to present the words that Jesus gave, the words of hope that people would find life. Each and every disciple was transformed. Their old life somehow morphed into this new life, this resurrected life. I mean, how else would you explain that they had no fear of the authorities, that they went from a fear-filled upper room to boldly teaching at the temple, that they had this idea of singing in prison, that they they rejoiced when they were beaten, that they, they actually couldn't be stopped. And think about all the things that they received for putting their allegiance with this risen Christ. They received beatings. They received torture. They received threats. They received stones. And some of them even got a cross to be killed themselves. And yet, they couldn't be stopped. It is the ultimate proof, I think, that this resurrected king wasn't just a myth, but was actually resurrecting something inside of them. That's what it means if you believe it. You get his peace. You get his presence. You get his power doesn't mean everything will be easy, but it means that the things that, that keep us from living get removed, that we get resurrected into this idea of true life, that, that the things that, that we look at in our lives that hold us back. For some of us, that's mental. We think something about ourselves, or we think something about the world, and it holds us back. And the resurrection is actually here to set us free to believe the right things about that. For some of us, it's physical. We have a physical setback. We have this physical prison, if you will, that keeps us from living this freedom, this peace, this joy. For others of us, it's relational. We get caught in this prison. We think that people either believe certain things about us or that we believe certain things about ourselves that keep us from interacting with others. And there is this resurrection that happens in all kinds of people with all kinds of personalities that sets them free to bless others, to love others, to see them in the image of God. And it's all throughout the story. And that's what Jesus does. And he destroys the power, the sting of death. We sung about it so that we could possess the power of life. 
The scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 6 that by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Romans 8 says the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Have you ever felt the power of the resurrection in your life? These two scriptures that I just read were written by a man named Saul whose name became Paul because he was the king of, well, he wasn't a king, but he was the master of religion. He had mastered what it meant to follow the rules, to look like they were an upstanding citizen, even made sure that anyone that didn't proclaim this truth that he believed would be put in prison. And yet, as he's walking down the road to imprison people who are following this resurrected king, there was a light that shone from heaven and blinded him so that he fell on the road as dead. And a voice came, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is 30 years, 20 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And yet, he's alive. 20 years after he's been crucified, and yet he is speaking to him like he is right in the room. That is the life that he now lives. This person says it so well. His, Paul writes of his own story. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. And yet, as I neared that road in Damascus, this light flashed from heaven. And I fell to the ground. And I heard the voice. When he talks about it later, he said, God in his kindness chose to reveal himself to me in Christ. It's a a little little polished. Not quite as tension-filled as the original story of his life, but sometimes that's true of us. As we talk about these situations in our life, for people that love God, they talk about God like he's so sweet, and we miss the wrestling that they face. Can I just encourage you, if you know and love Jesus, when someone is asking you about how you experience God in your life, would you include the tension? Because that's what the other person is feeling. Include it so they know that it's not this easy little stroll on a Sunday in your Easter clothes. That it actually might feel a little bit more like a wrestling match. Especially if you're smart, talented, ambitious. When I was 20 years old, I thought I was smart, talented, and ambitious. I wanted to pursue fame. I wanted wealth. I, wanted, I cared about what other people thought about me, and I thought I could control my life and that everything would be great. And then someone invited me to a Bible study And another group of people started living for Christ. And then one day, I heard someone say, if Jesus is Lord, you can't say no to him. And that day my life was wrecked. And yet, it was resurrected. I stopped living for me. And I learned, and I'm still learning, what it means to live for Christ. But I can now say, as 
This guy, Paul, who was met on the side of the road and wrestled down, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is not about me, friends. That is about what he does for each of us. This Easter, I want you to feel the tension of the resurrection. I can't tell you what to feel. I can't make you feel, but I... I would like you to feel the tension of the resurrection and what it would mean for you to fully believe it, what it would mean for you to step into that resurrected life. It'll cost you everything, but it'll be completely worth it. As the band comes up, would you just ask God right now in a prayer? Prayer can be as simple as Saying, hi, God, I really don't know what to pray. And that's okay. But can you feel his presence? And if you can't, can you be honest about that and ask him? Can you see the places in your life? Can you ask the Spirit of God, where are those places I'm looking for the living among the dead? Can you ask the Spirit of God how much evidence you need? And can you imagine what it would be like to be crucified with Christ that that you would no longer live for you, but that he would live through you? That's what it means to be set free. That's what it means to break free. God, that's what we want. Whether we are a skeptic, God, whether we've been seeking you for a little while, God, whether we know you, we want to know your presence. We, We really want some proof. God, I pray that that would be from a place of faith rather than a place of control. But I pray that we would come to you with what we truly, truly need. Maybe we come to you with what we want, but that we listen as well. God, you do want to set us free, and that's why you came. Ultimately, that's why you gave your life in Christ to set us free, not just from the sting of death, but from the power and hold and prison of death, from the power of sin and shame. God, you wanted us to live in this new life to live by faith, to live into the peace, to live into the hope, to live into your presence, to experience your resurrection, not just just someday in the future, God, but today, the day that we say, yes, I trust you, Jesus. I'm yours. I want freedom. I want healing. I'm looking for you. I'm trusting you. Let your resurrection start working in me now. God, I put my faith in this resurrected king. Amen.